Welcome to Kitty Talks, the podcast that shows you how to follow your passion and purpose. My name is Kitty Waters. I'm a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of ATL Europe Group, also the creator of Kitty Talks. Our mission is to inspire a generation of change makers to follow their passion and purpose and make a difference on the planet. All our interviewees have been carefully selected and you will hear amazing inspirational stories of people who have listened to their little voice and followed their purpose. They will reveal bite-sized tips and success secrets that can help you to fulfill your passion and purpose on the planet. Be sure to head over to kittytalks.com and sign up for our exclusive club where you can hear behind-the-scenes footage. These interviews will inspire you to take action. Please like and share so others can have the courage to follow their passion and purpose too. Good morning and welcome to Kitty Talks. We share inspirational life stories that encourage you to create yours. And today I have with me Matthew Gerwitz. I hope I pronounced that right. Matthew, is that right, Gerwitz? Gerwitz. Ger- oh, sorry, it's not. So Matthew is coming all the way from New York and he is a senior rabbi in New Jersey. And he's also the author of a book called The Gift of Grief, Grief Sorry, which we're going to talk about in detail because it's an amazing book which um, Matthew will tell us all about. But thank you so much for joining us so early in the morning in New York. That's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, Matthew and I have been chatting just a couple of times, actually, before we've had an in- this interview. And I can tell you that you're going to be in for an amazing treat. Um, we've already had some amazing conversations. So I look forward to sharing Matthew's journey, actually, with our listeners. So, Matthew, would you mind just kind of telling us a little bit more about who you are and what you do in the world? Absolutely. Uh, the story goes to my family that when I was five years old, my mother asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. It's not a story that I remember, but I remember the story that's been told over and over again. And I said that I wanted to be a rabbi on a motorcycle uh, at just five years old. And uh, so I go off on my way and do what I do. And, and I started in the corporate world, and my mother asked me on the holiest Jewish day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to come and spend some time in the afternoon in her house. And so I go, and she says, I believe that children know more about themselves than adults give them credit for. I said, well, I buy that. And she said, I can tell that you're happy at work, but you're not fulfilled. And I said, Mom, 23, who's fulfilled at work? She said, I know, but I want to tell you, remind you what you said when you were five years old. And she comes back and tells me that story about being a rabbi on a motorcycle. And very lovingly, I tell her that she's out of her mind. <laughs> How could this guy who uh, can't keep a date, you know, more than a week, you know, one woman more than a week, and, and, I, and I, I drink and I eat a non-kosher food. And, and she says, all those things are true. And you'll evolve through those things. But you've also always been a counselor, you've always been a storyteller. You've always uh, been a counsel to people, and uh, you've always believed in God almost organically. And was one of those things where I learned it. It was one of those things where, from the time that I was two or three years old, I would go to sleep at night and talk to God. Wow. And not the God with the, you know, not the old man with the beard. It was always for me an energy. It was a, a comforter. It was a, a, someone who cheered me on. So she encouraged that. And sure enough, uh, although I fought it like crazy, three years later, I went to rabbinic school with gut more than with my mind. And uh, three years into the five years of this graduate program to become a rabbi, I realized that it's what I need to be in my life. 
And um, but I just, that's where I got to where I am now. But I would say that if I'm just going to point to what happened, uh, there were a couple of inspirations and also a couple of things were very painful that turned me in this direction. The inspiration was, you might remember in 1972, there were 11 Israelis, uh, Israeli athletes who were kidnapped in Munich at the Olympics. Oh, yeah. And uh, as a kid, food and sports were everything. They still mean a lot to me, food and sports. Um, but the rabbi of my synagogue uh, decided to fast 11 days in a row for those 11 Israelis killed. And I don't remember the sermon, but I remember the act. And that act was so powerful for me that he was giving up one of my favorite things, food, yeah. for another one of my favorite things, sports, in the name of faith. And it was the first sort of manifested, acted, uh, uh, passionate, uh, uh, again, action that someone took in my life, and that really must have had impact. The motorcycle, I had no idea where it came from. It must have just been like, you know, my former Batman as a kid. It was, it was what we considered to be, as kids, cool. Uh, so that was the inspiration early. But then my parents, and I can remember this like I'm talking with my voice out loud right now, uh, getting up in the middle of the night to use the restroom and walking down the hallway in seven or eight. And I overheard my parents saying, you know, my father to my mother, Tabitha, if this continues, our marriage will be at stake. And at seven years old, eight years old, uh, although it's not hunger and it's not homelessness, what did that shake me my core? Yeah. I remember just charging back through the hall, down the hallway to my older sister's room, waking her up and saying, Liz, did you know that mom and pop are going through this? And, and she being the older sibling had already heard these conversations. And she affirmed what I said. And that be, you know, became the road to their divorce. And it really rocked my soul as a kid. It, it tore the fabric of our family apart. Uh, it, it, it catapulted me as the second oldest of four to becoming an adult in many ways. By the time I was 11 or 12, I was cooking dinner for my family. I was taking care of my younger siblings. And maybe even harder was I was counseling each parent to uh, deal with what it was that they were going through vis-a-vis -vis the other. Wow. And, uh, and listen, I, I'm a very blessed and grateful human being. I had everything I want in my life. But I would say that uh, I did lose, uh, in fairness to my own journey, I, I lost my childhood at that point and um, did not do what other kids did by way of, you know, being tucked in at night, you know, the, the stories being told, and, and even the academic. You know, I, I went to a better school with people who went 95% of them to the Ivy League schools in America. I went to a second rate university, was fine, I got a great education, I learned grit, determination, I had all these gaps along the way because my parents disappeared, mm. you know, dealing with their own issues and their own troubles. And you know, they didn't send us to a dentist for seven years. And you know, when I finally went to a dentist, I had nine cavities and two root canals. And so, again, I'm married, I have three children, I'm a successful rabbi, I am really a happy person. But both the combination of that rabbi who took action in 1972 and then sort of this dive into the reality of what loss feels like and what uh, fissure feels like, and what a loneliness feels like. And I would even go as far as to say, now in retrospect, I must have known that as depression as a kid, and, and putting on an enormous amount of weight between 10 and 18 years old, because no one was there to help us make decisions around food. So, in short, maybe I should say it wrong, <laughs> but let me do what I'm doing today. I'm now a rabbi for 
<clears throat> for 20 years. And uh, I've had my whole congregation of 1,200 families, and and, uh, and uh, a lot of that is behind me. But that are, those are the catapulting forces to what I have become today in many respects. Wow. And would you say, by the sounds of things, the sign of the series of events kind of led, well, by the sounds of things, you came in knowing you wanted to be a rabbi and then maybe lost that, like, you know, when you were younger. And then those series of events almost brought you back to the place in your twenties where actually that, that space opened up for you. You know, I, I, I told you the story in one of our conversations before, and I think it's worth telling. Yeah. And we were talking about, do we believe that what we're supposed to be, the pearl of who we are, that our purpose, is that given to us at birth? And Jewish tradition firmly believes that each of us is born with a seed. And uh, forget about, are we supposed to be good people? Are we supposed to be bad people? Are we born as good? Yeah, that's an age-old debate. And I don't want having it, but... I let's put judgment aside and just say that who we're supposed to be, what our purpose on earth is, uh, Jewish tradition believes, I believe, that we're born with it. And uh, and, and it's specifically uh, divine light, this primordial light that, that the tradition tells us was created in the first couple of days of the world, before the sun, before the moon. I'm not talking about the light that allows us to see now, I'm talking about the light that allows us to see from within. So that's given to every single person. And the, the puzzle put forth from that time forward is, are we going to have the wisdom? Are we going to have the removal of ego, which sort of takes up so much space, mm. for us to see ourselves? Mm. Not for us to see something else, but to actually see what's right there. It's sort of saying, come come get me. I'm right here to be taken. Mm. Not, I'd rather try to be someone else right now. And we spend our whole lives chasing something that's actually right inside of us. Uh, so... So yes, in many ways, my mother was clearing the brush for me back in that conversation in my early 20s, saying, when you were pure and you didn't get in the way of yourself, you made it very clear what you wanted to be in your life. I'm here now to clear that brush and say, why did you go for it exactly what it is that you were meant to be? You know, counterintuitively, paradoxically, it was so funny, it's the same mother, you know, who with my father helped yeah. create a lot of confusion. Uh, who came back again uh, years later when things were much healthier to say, you know, come, sweetheart, let, let's let's clear your brush because you should be what you want in your life. She ended up doing that for several people in their lives. She changed four or five trajectories in just my friendship circle. Yeah. Extraordinary in that way. And it's it's really interesting to, to hear you say that because I think we, we touched on this before, but I'm really seeing a pattern with the interviews that I'm doing where people are, they go almost through their darkest hour Um, And in my own experience, you know, it was my darkest hour where everything shifted and changed for me. And I'm seeing a real common theme in the interviews that I'm doing that a lot of people have had to go through this dark, like you said, almost like they're letting go of the ego and the ego is cracking. So they're able to actually see, like you said, their light and what they're supposed to do on the planet. You know, the, the ego is one of those really, uh, we'll use the word a lot today, paradoxical elements, because the ego really does a lot to defend us. You know, it, it, it helps protect us mm. through a lot of uh, dark moments in our lives, but then we end up depending on it in a way that is end-all, be-all. And our ego should just be a shell when a shell is needed. The problem is that we use a shell oftentimes when it's not needed, and it ends up not just defending us from others, but it ends up inhibiting us from reaching who it is it we're supposed to be. So we get caught up 
and that defense mechanism to the extent of <clears throat> really leaving ourselves in the dark. And what does the Jewish Jewish faith kind of recommend, or you know, around? Do they do you talk about the ego and the de- deconstruction of the ego? Yes, yeah, so it was just an expression. It's actually the, the centerpiece um, of the book. is it, It's a it's a mystical term, and uh, when I talk about mysticism, it comes from fifteen sixteen hundred. Um, Northern Israel, the, the Jews there were expelled from Spain. Uh, they get to Israel. Jerusalem is way too snooty for them because there were um, Eastern European, uh, nice European. They're there from the other side of uh, of, of you know, you have Western Europe, which has a lot of high culture, and Eastern Europe, which okay, already is not looked at as as high culture as the others. So they get to Jerusalem. They don't feel at home. So they go up to a, a city called Sfat, in English it's Safed, S-A-F-E-D. And they go up there because there's this trade with Syria and there's, there's, there's boating routes. And they are basically trying to construct a theology around healing because they've been expelled from their home in Spain. They're rejected from the snooty Western Europeans in Jerusalem. So they come up north and they create this whole idea of mysticism, which is all about bringing where they see the female elements and the male elements got together mm. to be whole, and if they can make the energy of the world whole, then they themselves can also be whole. And uh, so they teach this, um, they teach a lot of uh, things, but one of them is called Bitul HaNefesh, and it means nullification of the ego. And it's not necessarily that you could make it happen at any moment, but they say that there's different parts of life that allow you to experience the possibility of nullifying your ego so you can see straight through to your light. One of them, it turns out, uh, is, is suffering. And so not that you're supposed to suffer, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, all these ridiculous things that say, you know, God's choosing you to suffer. Judaism doesn't believe that you're chosen to suffer. But it does believe, if you like it or not, if you ask for it or not, we all inevitably will suffer. It's just it's part of life. It's yeah, we're human incarnation. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to lose someone. We're going to be divorced from someone. We're going to lose a job. We're going to be disappointed. Yeah. So since you can't help that, this notion says you have the choice. And the choice is either getting through it or transforming through it. Getting through it is making believe that at ego, it's just going to defend you and you're stronger than you really are and you're better than you really think you are. But the other transforming through it is, at this moment, I am who I am. And I am either sad, I'm lost, I'm in pain. And if you close your eyes and you, you cry your eyes out if you need to, or you need to help, whatever it is that you're feeling, you double down on that. Mm. And in that moment, you both feel extraordinary pain, and then suddenly, this extraordinary breakthrough. What are you breaking through? You're breaking through the ego. And uh, what do you find underneath? But this beautiful thing called wisdom, and it's your wisdom that's always been there. And if you can get through that pain and you stay in it just long enough, not to get depressed, but just long enough to feel it, it bursts through, and then you find light. And it might just be a piece of life for that moment, but then you do it the next day, and you sort of sew a few of these together. The next thing you know, you're living in that light regularly. Mm. Not magic, it's not you know, it's not like you take a pill and it's all better. It's just good old-fashioned transformation as opposed to ego, uh, which is the getting through part. This is the transformation, which is the breaking through part. 
And you've got an amazing example of this that you've lived through and where you've helped people really experience this, haven't you? Could you tell us a bit more about the book and what, you know, obviously the context of the book? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, so I'm now again 20 years into my rabbit and very quickly, I'd say three or four years in, inevitably every year, and still unfortunately every year, you have these horrible things that happen. You have, you know, uh, every year you have a spouse who loses someone in their 30s or 40s or 50s, way younger than you're supposed to. Sometimes, God forbid, you have parents who lose children. Um, and again, suicide. I mean, if you're running a big congregation and every year something like this is going to happen, and, and it's as horrible as you can imagine. And uh, there are so few answers the way you would imagine. And the person can barely move as you would imagine. And I could go telling you story after story with these great side scenes, but instead of telling those stories, what I'll tell you is that counterintuitively, each of these people who really stayed the course, meaning that they, you know, didn't make believe it was okay, you know, just opened up to every single degree to how horrible it was, each of them uh, found this wisdom that I just alluded to that ended up transforming them in one way or another, uh, not to a better life, because that would presuppose that their life that the person they lost wasn't good. No, they would have traded in anything to have had those people back. But because they engaged, and because they were honest with themselves, and because they were truthful, and they went through that nullification of the ego, each of them found wisdom which changed the entire trajectory of their lives. So not only did they find healing, um, but they also found a new engagement that they didn't know was possible before in living the life they had before the loss. And that's highlighted, unfortunately, most of all, uh, I, I was a rabbi, a pretty young rabbi too, I was in 2001, but four years out when the, the uh, events around September 11th, 2001 took place, working on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, <clears throat> which meant that, and I say this with uh, real trepidation, because no loss of life is lucky, but we could have lost 50 members, and we lost uh, we lost three, because somehow the others were either late to work, or were taking their kids to school that morning. Wow. I mean, that's the story mostly that because it was a, an election day, and it was the first day of school in New York, I think the city probably saved 15,000 people that way because it was happened to be they were most people went late to work. Remember that the planes crashed around 8 49 o'clock in the morning. Generally, yeah. everyone was at work at that point. Yeah. There were very few people at work. We were in the town. So, but right. anyway, I was a rabbi then, and I would say for about 60 days straight, all of us worked nonstop, not just in officiating at, at funerals, but you have to realize that everyone around those people were affected. And then there was a whole other set of people, including my own wife, who was there and watched it happen. Watched the planes fly into the building, the big black clouds, people to sort of give themselves their own sense of freedom before they died, because they knew they were going to die jumping out of windows mm. and saying, I'm going to choose this death instead of the death by burning. And, uh, we're now used to this life a little bit because we're in a post 9 11 world, but you remember, I mean, none of us thought this was possible. No, I remember it, I remember it happening really clearly. Like, I think everyone remembers where they were when it happened because. Yeah, no, we, and, and you know, my, my father would talk to me about Pearl Harbor. Yeah. story. And, and, uh, and that, that's what became real, like an attack on our homeland. So, so besides all that work and all that craziness, Specifically, these widows or widowers 
suddenly were showing the exact same things I had seen in the previous years with other types of loss, which was again, you know, utter devastation and utter misery. But the ones who really worked on themselves with therapists, with friends, with their clergy, with their children, with themselves, uh, who really doubled down on their misery, not in a way that was depressing, but that was real engagement, ended up coming out with clarity that I had never, I had never seen before. I mean, just clarity that you and I would beg to have in our lives. And can you, because obviously it's one thing to talk about, like, how did they do that? Would they, would they, would they, like, they'd write potentially, they'd engage with their feelings rather than, you know, what, when we're going through a hard time like that, the, the tendency is to block it off and to not even go into that energy or into that space and to kind of just keep it at a distance. But how did they actually engage with their pain? So that's, that's what was amazing. I want to highlight what you said. Most would choose to block. Uh, they choose to engage. So depending on the different people, yeah, uh, many of them uh, went right into therapy. So they uh, were, went to people who... I don't mean twisted their arms, but basically forced them to talk about what was going on. Yeah. Uh, others were with friends all the time. And these friends had to be extraordinary because you know friends generally are. You want to be there with them until it becomes too depressing for the friend. Mm. Circle of friends <clears throat> never left their side. So there was ongoing conversation and, and, and ongoing tears, ongoing talking about exactly how they were feeling, exactly how horrible life was exactly how dark it was, we kept on going. Uh, yes, some of them started to do writing. Many of them started to come <clears throat> to synagogue because prayer became a place, meditation became a place, exercise became a place. All places that would accept them to go to these really, really dark, uh, on their dark journey were the places that they went to. So I don't get, I, I, I was very clear about this in the book, I don't want to say, Oh, great. Now they became religious people. They were not typically people that would call themselves religious, nor were they now. So let's remove the word religious. We can talk about that if you want later, why the word religion is such an inhibitor, because it is. Mm. But let's use this now. They engaged in their spiritual lives. They meditated, they prayed, they talked, they wrote, they ran, meaning, you know, exercise, anything that was able to make them vulnerable. Because mm. uh, that's, the, that's the key. You want to engage in vulnerable making activity. So meditation removes the ego. Exercise removes the ego. Deep talking, deep therapy, deep prayer. Um, and by the way, even deep travel, meaning going places that were real. All the gossip magazines went away. All the useless conversation went away. That was amazing. Like usually half of someone's day is, is about useless things. Excuse me for that. Okay. Um, but these people... All want to engage only in what counted. They removed the friends that were fake, they kept the ones that were real. They removed the activities that were fake, and they only engaged with that which was real. Wow. Yeah, and I can I can see that. Like I'm now now think sitting here listening to you, thinking about my own life and the examples where um where I've actually blocked off pain and actually the, the counterintuitive way that impacts you. I think that like you said, by blocking the pain, we, we actually spiral downwards uh, and become depressed because we internalize and, you know, all of our emotions. Whereas what, what you're saying that these people did was they were vulnerable and they opened up to the emotions and to the pain, but then the emotions could flow through them. And obviously they become, they could clear what was happening to them a lot quicker. 
um, and enable them to come through the other side rather than have carry, I suppose, the horrendous trauma that they've been through. Yeah, let's, if it's okay, let's just finish yeah. for a second between pain and depression, because I think that that's where the rub is, is that you think to yourself, look, so depression that's been explained to me as I've experienced it is a process by which everything is stuck. Yes. So not only are you in misery and pain, but it's there's no energy in me. It's just stuck there. But pain that is not about depression, uh, brokenness, is a, it can be about energy that moves. So you may be broken inside, but you're moving the pieces around. It's not stuck. It's very painful. And it's misery, but it's constantly moving. And the difference between the things that are moving and things that are stuck, stuck stays there. Yeah. Energy eventually has those pieces of a broken heart that will find their match and start to put themselves back together because the person is doing everything they can to keep moving. It's, it's, you know, I had an old friend who's a therapist who says, when in doubt, if you're having one of these horribles, you feel like you're, you know, entering the sense of depression, yeah. go to the treadmill, you know, or, or, or go do something, not something to move your energy around because you let it get stuck. Um, and I'm not uh, suggesting that anyone lets anything up. I know from having my own depression in life, that you, any of us, just, you know, you don't feel like you have control. Uh, but by the way, the point is, is that when you realize you don't have control, except over the little pieces you do, that's when you have a breakthrough. Mm. And those of us who think we can control it all, that's the ego talk. Yeah. But those yeah. of us who know that it, it, just getting up in the morning and doing what we have to do helps. I just want to distinguish between people who often say to me, so Rabbi, are you suggesting that I double down on what hurts? Uh, I said, yeah, I'm not, you know, telling you to do what Kitty, you just suggested is that you think if you don't enter the pain, it's better for you, but then you end up depressed. So I'm saying, no, 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 if you don't do anything, you're just going to depress if you do something. Mm. And you try to sort of get more in it. You dig into the wound, which initially hurts. Then, again, counterintuitively, you will find healing. Mm. And what, what sort of insights were people coming, coming out with? Like you, you were saying that they were coming through the other side with incredible wisdom, like almost being able to see why they had to go through that experience or... Yeah, so it's so uh, one uh, woman who was thoroughly in love with her husband who was killed at uh, the Twin Towers and really had a great life um, thought that she knew what it meant to love. And she did with the first version of herself. She loved her husband and they had a good enough marriage and they had three you know, wonderful little children. But what she learned about herself and her capacity to love led her to a relationship afterwards um, and she actually called me crying on the phone once saying, I feel so guilty. And I say, what's going on? And she said, you know, my first husband deserved the love that I didn't know I had inside of me that I can now give. Wow. Instead, I'm giving it to my new husband. And it's not fair. And it was his loss that enabled her to dig in deeply, to realize how generous she was, to realize how much it meant to love someone thoroughly, and to give of her whole self. She thought she was doing that. And then the gift, unfortunately, that she got from her husband by virtue of his death, and I say gift with quotes, yeah. it's no real gift, but the wisdom she got was the ability to love someone in the way that she always should have. And that she gave her, you know, a, a shot at life that she didn't know that she had, and the ability to love the, the other person that I write about in the book, uh, lived a pretty good life basically as a housewife. Mm -hmm. And there was no problems. She had a her husband was a very, very, very successful sports marketer. 
one of the most important people in the NBA and in the basketball here in America. And her work on herself got her to understand um, the gifts that she had to give to others. And she is now one of the most important hospital chaplains in New York City. And uh, she herself learned what it meant to help people die, um, to uh, see her husband um, did this extraordinary thing. Her husband, he knew he was dying. So he wrote something like 30 letters uh, to his children, to his wife, to his business associates, to his clergy, uh, a eulogy for his funeral. So he was able to say everything he wanted to say. He died in many ways, the perfect death, except the fact that he died. Yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, did everything someone was supposed to do before they died. And she realized what a gift that was. And as she went through all of her pain, she realized that that was something she was able to share. Uh, so she now uh, has written uh, books and has run groups uh, about what it means to die of death and to make sure that all of us are prepared to give what our husband gave to her uh, before uh, he left this world. And she would have said, you know, she had a pretty, you know, she's a very bright, deep woman that lived a pretty superficial life given the abilities that she had. All of this plugged her into the place where now for 15 years, this is all she does. And she, and now the way that's, you know, martyrdom, it's all about generosity. So she's found her generosity. She's found her deep counseling self. And she now helps, she now helps people die with deaths all over New York. Wow. So she has magnified um, her impact on the world, in the world, you know, like by a hundred million times by the sounds of things, the way she was living previously. She, she did, and, and by the way, nothing was wrong with life before. No. It just wasn't meaningful. So again, there's this whole thing inside of her was this generosity, was this healing spirit, was this deep intelligence, and it just wasn't being used because nothing had ever pushed her to, to find it. I, I want to say, and we could talk about this later, I, I just want to make it clear that my work, I don't believe it has to be lost. That, that removes the ego. I think that extraordinary joy and meditation and, and all these, there are many other elements of life that can help us find our death. It's just that often we don't feel compelled to go there unless we're pushed to go there. And that's a really interesting insight because, again, what I would say from the interviews that I have been doing is I also believe that the consciousness level of the planet is shifting. So what I personally am witnessing through the through the interviews I'm doing is a lot, historically, people have had to go into that pain or have that some type of um breakdown to break through but actually some of the people i'm interviewing maybe slightly younger generation um are finding it through joy you know they're finding it in different ways and, and, and actually finding it much younger if you think about you know midlife crisis used to be the the kind of classic stage where people would break open and you know they'd have a change of direction because what they were doing on the planet wasn't or fulfilling them you know, their, co- their corporate job didn't fulfill them anymore. But actually, if you look at kind of millennials now, you know, they're coming out and they're here to make a difference uh, on the, on, in the world, you know, right from a very young age. So I, I do believe that things shift generationally. And um, I'm happy to say that I think we are, as a planet, uh, shifting our consciousness levels. And people are becoming, as you would say, kind of in touch with their light much quicker. Um, you know, they, they watch us, and and uh, and I think they realize, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to go through that. No. But they, they they just can't be tricked into that. No matter what, even with joy, there's something about it that still works. 
and I don't mean that's like it doesn't have to be painstaking, but it you know, that, that that making believe you're okay, which is equals ego versus being okay, which is light. It's not easy. You know, we, we fool ourselves very easily. Our egos are excellent what they do. They are. And one of the other things that really I'm encouraging people to, to do through the Kitty Talks interviews is listen to those internal intuition and those nudges. You know, because quite often the ego, like you said, is very good at protecting us. So we don't tend to follow our intuition. We don't tend to listen to that inner voice because our ego is protecting us. But actually, I think now more and more people, like through meditation, through spiritual practice, people are getting more and more in touch with their intuition, their inner light. And they're able to go into their passion and purpose a lot quicker than they maybe did, you know, previous generations. Yes. (laughs) But thank you so much. I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, and also, thank you for your work. You're contributing great things to our world. So thank you. Yeah, and I, I just want to share with everyone. Actually, we just we got connected by a series of wonderful synchronicities, and this is exactly what I mean. A friend of mine who I interviewed said you must talk to Matthew, and and I'm so glad he did connect us because yeah, really beautiful conversation. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Kitty Talks. Be sure to head over to our kittytalks.com website. Become a member of our exclusive club and you'll get free interviews and access to our private Facebook group. Exclusive webinars and secret success interviews. See you there.